Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm really glad you could join me on this episode as we're going to be speaking with Hazel Heal. And we have a super wide-ranging conversation. We really jump all over the place in this one. And I learned a lot about hepatitis and the endeavor that Hazel's been involved with. This is a really amazing interview, and I hope that you enjoy it and get encouraged by her example as much as I was. If you do like it, then consider sharing about it in social media to help raise the profile of what she's doing. And of course, that helps Seeds Podcast out as well. And if you're new to the show, why not hit subscribe? Now let's get straight into this interview with Hazel. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Hazel Heal, who's the co-founder of Global Health New Zealand. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me, Stephen. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation um, because I know that you've been involved in a number of different things. Um, so we're going to talk about a lot of different topics, which is my favorite type of conversation. <laughs> um, but before we get into some of the initiatives in particular around health that you're involved in today, what I'd like to do is go back in time mm-hmm. and talk about where people are from because mm-hmm. I'd like to understand what's motivated them, how have they been shaped. So in your case, could you tell us a little bit about your childhood and even back when you were four or five years old, where were you living and what was it like? Yeah, I can. I'm, I'm one of those people I can remember um, right back as a toddler. And I can remember one time struggling to put words and apparently I was talking before, well before I was two, so it was quite early. Wow. Um, I grew up in Christchurch. I grew up in Port Hills Road with the hills at my back, and I feel very connected to the Port Hills here. And I went to a power school. My parents took us uh, at four or five was quite um, a particular point in my life because my parents started Tamariki Alternative School here in Christchurch, and my older sister and brother went to that. And I was, of course, expected to. Um, I went along for a couple of days just before my fifth birthday. And I've always been quite judicious, and I, I have always remembered this throughout my life, but I just went, no, nah, I'm not going to the school. No one's in charge. It's, it's anarchy. Children are unsafe. There was somebody being ruthlessly bullied um, with sanction from the adults. So I just wasn't going to go there. And to my credit, my parents, so it was their thing, you know, this <laughs> alternative school, that's, they'd really tried hard to get it up and running. Um, mm. And it was a good place for a lot of people, but not for me. Um, they, they took me at my word and, and allowed me to go to the local state school. Hmm. So it sounds like you, had, you, you knew your mind from a very young age. <laughs> yes, I think so. Um, you know, my mother was just reminding me today that people said, are you, would say to her, are you all right with her doing that? And she just quickly learned that, yeah. I was going to do what I was going to do. Yeah. I did go to an alternative school for my high schooling, but um, I, yeah, mainstream schooling. But we went, I, my parents were really keen travellers and really wanted to travel and children had held them back. And when I was six, we went overseas for 18 months and we did um, motor caravan type OE around England and Europe. Uh-huh. So this was 1969, 1970. Right. Um, so we went over in a boat and flew back and it was kind of that era of, of the change of going to the UK by boat hmm. um, was the last thing. So, yeah, I a lot of amazing memories. I learned to read very fluently within days of leaving New Zealand and, yeah, learned to read on the tube stations and things, <laughs> reading the news stations as they would pop on and stuff like that. So, 
Wow, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. And so just, I'm really curious about your parents, because it sounds like they were quite interesting to set up a school like this. What had motivated them to do that? Yeah, look, my parents were... Um, very socially advanced. I think I was very lucky to grow up in a liberal household. So, uh, well, it seems to me I was. Um, they uh, were c- founders of the Values Party. So the Values Party pr- was the pre-runner to um, the Green Party in New Zealand. And my childhood was filled with um, leafleting for elections and talking about conservation and pollution and recycling. I was the only kid in my school who knew what recycling was. Um, and uh, my father would always stand for mayor of Christchurch. He was good friends. With, I saw your recent podcast with Gary Moore, and mm-hmm. Gary Moore used to come uh, to our house with with um, the Values Party people, and they would talk about uh, proportional representation. Rod Donald, um, as a 19-year-old, would come to our family home with Gary, and they'd talk about proportional representation, and they lobbied Geoffrey Palmer until they got... MMP basically hmm. from that starting point. So, wow. yeah, quite. That's the kind of house it was. Yeah, it's interesting to me though already because I know some of the things you're involved in today in terms of advocating for change and yes. seeking new ways of doing things. And so, even it, as a child, it sounds like you were exposed to that. You know, I was exposed to it, and um, I there was a few incidents in my life where I, I really took it on. I, I mean, I don't know why it took me till I was fifty-two to realise I needed to study law because. I was holding people to account <laughs> to the letter of, of the law quite early um, in Form 1, uh, yeah, which is uh, yeah, Year 7 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd, I was the chair of the school uh, council from age 7 to 12, I think. Um, and, yeah, I, I was really horrified by strapping and um, corporal punishment and the way it was used and why it was used and who against always the young... We only had two Māori kids in our school, school always being strapped. Um, and, um, yeah, I hated it. And one day uh, a teacher strapped a kid really violently so that they needed medical attention. And I knew it couldn't be right, so I wrote to the Ministry of Education and found out what the rules were around strapping. And um, I found out what they were. They weren't allowed to do more than 10 strokes a week, not more than six a day. And they weren't to stray between the lines of the wrist and the fingers. And um, and so the next time some friends of mine got lines to write in class, I got them to write out the rules. <laughs> <laughs> and we got them all over everyone and just gave them to everyone. And they used to just wave them to the teachers. No, you can't strap me anymore this week. I've had my 10. Hmm. So that's it's the kind amazing, of thing I like to do um, at that age, and I, I wasn't afraid. I had a, it was a big school of power. They had 500 kids, a very old school um, principal, but he, I, I pulled him up once or twice in, in, for bullying in um, assemb- whole school assemblies. I know he fainted once. I was so nervous, but he actually apologised and shook my hand and said I was right. Um, hmm. I took a strap off him once when he was strapping a five-year-old, and he thanked me. So I actually learned a lot from him. He was a really, he, he could back down, uh, a man who we wouldn't think could. Mm. That was really interesting. Mm. So you saw that actually standing up for things resulted in change. Yes, yes. Mm. So if, if I'm sure of my ground, and that's always stayed with me, if I'm yeah. sure of my ground, yeah. um, it's like, as you'll know with the law case, if you know your case inside out, there's nothing you don't know about it, then, mm. yeah. yeah. Um, if I'm sure of my ground, then I'm, I've, I've held it and found it when I can. Mm. And what had influenced your parents? It sounds like they were well ahead of their time in many ways. Um, yeah, because they because they'd come through, you know that I guess the war years and things like that would have been a 
memory yes, for them. And that's right. They were ch- ch- they were children of the war, mm-hmm. um, both of them. Um, my father's father immigrated, was born in 1900, which I find fascinating because it kind of spans uh, um, history. And he arrived in New Zealand in 1929 from born in China. And, of course, 1929 was a really big year in China with the Chiang Kai-shek and... Um, he had come to grief with the British forces, not the Chinese forces there, and, and made a dash for New Zealand. Mm. Um, he he was probably very mentally unwell. I think he was bipolar, and there was we didn't have lithium in those days, but that also allowed people to think really freely, I think, at some point. He was a correspondent with Bertrand Russell and obviously had a lot of interests. I never met him. It was before my birth. Mm. But um, some of that must have carried through. And um, my father was particularly influenced when he was in... Um, military training and he met uh, a local Māori leader and learnt about the wrongs that had been done to Māori land rights and um, he learnt how much had never been paid back and what the actual rights in place were and that burned within him as a Pākehā all his life and he very early on um, wanted to make that, uh, do what he could to make it right. He was a self, he was self-employed, he, he ran a second-hand business uh, second-hand machinery business, and we used to play with sprockets and gears and metal and oil and stuff. But he sold that to work for um, Nahoe Farmerai when it was first set up here in Pages Road. He was the site manager and chair of the trust there. Mm. And then he went on to be the small business manager for Naitahu and uh, got to realise his dream, which was he'd had all his life, which was the whale watch business, which he um, wanted to see the tribe develop and helped get developed. Mm. Um, and the whale watch business, the purpose of that was to fund the Naitahu claim and be the first claim. So he he died actually doing that. So he never got to go out on a whale watch boat um, and he never saw the claim completed, but he was in at the start and he mm. helped fund it. Oh, that's really fascinating. Mm. Yeah, it's amazing to me. Sometimes you meet people or you hear about people who were so decades ahead of the thinking of the day. Yeah. And it sounds like he would, would have been one of them. I, I, he, he qualifies for that, uh, definitely. And mm. my mother was the same for feminism. So mm. she uh, she worked for many years. As She first of all conceived of the need for it, wanted it, the next step centre for women at Polytech, so for people who were leaving the um, kitchen sink and wondering what was next um, in the 70s. Mm. She, she, uh, her course, which she first took and then designed and then ran, um, would take people to universities and to the volunteer centre and into all sorts of places around the city to um, to find a new next step mm. um, from yeah yeah that's amazing and so coming back to your own life and you know we've heard a little bit about your childhood and things when you were getting into high school years were there certain subjects that appealed to you or did you have a you know leaning one way or the other oh look I did and it, you know that this I, I don't have many regrets in life but a little bit about this so. Yeah, I really liked maths and science as a child. Um, I couldn't get any satisfactory answers. But why about science at, at, high, at primary school? Um, I was. They used to come and study me every six months for my comprehension and my maths ability. And, um, and that was certainly what I was best at. I liked it. And then um, I went to Hagley High School for six months took grave offence at something that happened there with a stand-in teacher and I decided I'd go to Four Avenues Alternative High School for the rest of my high schooling Mm. and um, didn't like the maths teacher and never did another maths class. Mm. So maths and and there was no labs and there was no science to speak of. Um, And so maths and science just fell away from me at at 12 or 13, which just really isn't good enough because, yeah, I probably would have followed that. Um, Mm. 
And as a consequence of that, when I decided to finally pick up tertiary education way into my 50s, um, I chose law because I didn't need maths and science. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So what, what was that high school like then, the alternative side of it? Four avenues. Look, you know, there was lots of things that were good, and I, I appreciate um, a lot of the experiences it gave me, and and I'd say confidence, but I already had confidence. Um um, but I went there to accelerate my accelerate academically, and it, it didn't allow me to do that because we were so self-directed. Children don't know what they don't know. <laughs> Teenagers don't know what they don't know, and the self-direction for me was um, was too wide. Right. Um, but the brilliant thing about it was that we did uh, a one-day-a-week work experience, and we went on a lot of trips, and you know, long trips like week-away trips. And all of those I found really, really valuable. I did everything, work experience. I worked in jewellers and saddlers and, oh, I can't remember, just, yeah, many, many places. And that got me really quick to adapt to a workplace, which was handy when I showed up in England and had to work in bars and cafes and stuff like that. So, yeah. yeah. So what happened when you got to the end of the high school years? Um, it sounds the, like you didn't go to university I at that didn't, point. So, so what, what, what was the thinking? Or the yeah. tr- Well, I left without enough two points short of university entrance. Mm -hmm. I sat university entrance in the fifth form and passed, and they told me, oh, sorry, you can't be awarded that. You need four years secondary education, so it counted for nothing. I was pretty tossed, uh, teed off about that and mucked around quite a bit the the following year and left two points short. Um, Everything was self-directed. I went to UE geography um, exam. We, We had no internal assessment because there was only 60 people at the 70 people at the school we had to sit them out at the university so we'd go out to University of Canterbury to sit our exams and I'd had two two classes for university entrance geography and um, with one other t- pupil and um, for the whole year and I went on general knowledge alone and I didn't even know you needed colored pencils and stuff I had to do cross hatching and and squares and dots and stuff to differentiate maps with my one color pen and I passed just but um, I, I was a couple of points short. So university, I wasn't even thinking about it. All I wanted to do was travel. So all I wanted to do was um, get a job, save, travel. I, oh, mm. So that's what I did straight away. Mm. And um, my, this is a, quite interesting. My first job when I left school, I was a mouse trainer for a mouse circus. Oh. And uh, it didn't really come to much, but it sounds good. And um, my next job was uh, uh, working on the census, and um, they had 10,000 occupation codes, but they didn't have mouse trainer. <laughs> So how what does how do you teach a mouse? Yeah, so uh, the mouse you have like a, a, a giant like say tabletop aquarium type thing uh-huh. with all the um, seesaws and roundabouts and stuff in it. Yeah, and while walking around that table with the patter yada 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 and the jokes and stuff, um, people you crumple up uh, ice cream cones. You keep the mice a little hungry. Yeah, and um, they love ice cream cones, and the cr- it's a very dull crunch, and it doesn't make much noise, but the mice can hear it. And if you just walk to the other side of the table and crunch a little bit of ice cream cone, they run over there and jump on that roundabout and do their thing. So, ah, yeah. I see. And how many mice were there in the oh, circus? I guess there would have been about forty or fifty or something. Right. But yeah, we never got past the demo um, model, and then yeah, I moved on to another job. I could see it wasn't going to happen, but okay. So, so the plan was that it would be like a touring, touring thing, show. and sh- schools and f- yeah, schools turned out to be not very interested in having my circus. It's not for education. I can see why, but <laughs> yeah, the guy thought it was good. The schools were going to jump at it or something. But yeah. yeah, yeah, I feel like there's a movie in it though. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> there must. Well, be. yeah, there was more. Talk- yeah, anyway, 
leave that one there. <laughs> so then um, you ended up in Europe, you said? Was that so yeah, I saved, at, I worked for the census, saved hard, and um, also then I went and worked in a toy factory, Tarata Toys, I worked there many times, balancing and jug, uh, jigsaw animals you'll see everywhere, they're still around. Mm-hmm. Um, I saved everything I could and left with a friend um, to go uh, through Asia to England. Uh, she turned around halfway through and I travelled on by myself um, and another friend joined me a little bit. Mm. I travelled through Asia for about a year, ended up in England, very, very low paid jobs, got sacked four times for saying no to the boss, scraped every penny together, made it home again um, through India, but yeah. Wow, quite an experience. Live, so. live in jobs, and when you get sacked, you lose everything. You right. know, you lose, you get, it's a get out right now sort of thing. So, and what era are we talking about? In so that's eighty three, eighty four. Okay, so there's quite a lot going on in Europe at that time as well. There was, of, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Coal miners' strikes. Um, there was just straight after um, the Falklands. Mm-hmm. Straight after New Zealand's nineteen eighty one tour stuff was when we were moving to that. Um, but yeah, Europe was Europe was. I wasn't as aware of it as I would be now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you were over there, sometimes I'm curious about identity. Did you find that being away from New Zealand solidified your feelings as a New Zealander, or, or yeah, how did absolutely. That... So yeah, when I was leaving, I just wanted to get out, and I didn't really, almost no appreciation for what I was leaving. Right. Um, and even though I travelled widely around it and stuff, but. Um, as I was in, actually, it was in the Himalayas in Nepal that I thought, "Hey, I've got this at home," <laughs> you know, <laughs> because you go up a long way till you're even at that level um, in the Himalayas, and it doesn't look that much different to standing in front of Mount Cook or Araki uh, or yeah, Araki Mount Cook or um, yeah. And I started to think, "Hey, we've got a lot of this at home." Mm. But um, the, I remember when we came back, like uh, we'd been in England and then we'd been in India and really broke, really, really broke, like no bus fare from the airport broke. Mm-hmm. And um, got back to town in, the, in Christchurch City and was outside Ballantyne's and it was like a neutron bomb had gone off. Like there was just no people at 5.30. It just seemed so quiet, like just empty streets and, and yeah, very, very, very quiet. It was shocking to me on return. Mm. But um, you soon get used to it. <laughs> so it's like a reverse culture shock almost. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So from going from bustle to no bustle mm. was even more noticeable for me than going to the intense bustle, I think. If, it is quite intense landing in India when you're 18. Um, um, and, yeah, and mm. I was there nine months. I travelled around, both times travelled around third class. Yeah, it's pretty intense, but it's very interesting. Yeah. What did you appreciate most about India? Because that's quite a long time to be there. It is. Um, look, I, I loved it. Uh, just the intensity and the realness and the liveliness. Um, when I went to Nepal, I loved Nepal, but when I came back to India, I had this kind of, across, as soon as I crossed the border, I had this kind of homecoming feeling. I haven't been back, you know, all these years I haven't been back. Hmm. But um, definitely when I went, then went to England for a few, uh, nearly a year and then came back through India, it was just such a relief to be back. I loved it. I loved being swept up in it. Um, I love that, you, you know, you only have to raise your voice and there's somebody there, you know, really. Um, mm. And, yeah, the yeah the intensity plus the colour and the vibrancy and the, yeah, the mm. skills of the people. Yeah, those are the words that sort of stand out to me. I haven't been there yet, but my wife spent a couple of months in India and she described kind of arriving from London and then arriving yeah. in India and walking out the main doors and just... Colour. The, yeah, the colours, the people, the sounds... 
the food, the everything, yeah. you know, is so vibrant. Vibrant you know, and a buzz and, and often very joyful, you know, very, very poor people, very, very joyful. Mm. And I went the other way. So I went from um, at 18, I landed in London in December. Um, again, utterly penniless. I'd lent my money for my friend to return home and she was supposed to get it to me in England, in India and it never arrived and right. I had to catch a plane and, you know, anyway. Uh, utterly penniless. But um, it was, you know, dark at, <laughs> you know what it's like, <laughs> yeah. dark at three between sort of 9.30 and three mm. is the only daylight. Mm. And the people just seemed so depressed and everything seemed so dark and everyone seemed so unhappy. And mm. then a lot of the unhappy people I realised were way wealthier than the very happy, poor, bright, coloured, full lives that I'd been seeing lived in India. Um, with, uh, And yeah, it was, a very, it was a real culture shock going the other way. Mm. Very eye-opening, it sounds like. Mm. So you come back to New Zealand what happened next yeah so what happened next is um I guess not either then or earlier or later I started what, what happened to me was I got hep C somewhere in my life I might have got it um who knows anyway we all get it by accident requires someone else's blood to come into blood mm. yeah there's candidates I have blood poisoning at the dentist I there's yeah all this all the usual ways that people can get it I must have done all of them but um, I had a also had a typhoid shot in Athens when I was six, and I remember that there was this massive metal syringe and just went round like fifty people in, a, in one arm and out the next, and you know, be amazing if I didn't get it then. Mm. Um, so what happened was that that started to happen to me. So I, I completely unaware of it at the time, but I I can see that I started to go to sleep, mm. um, to, and my body just started battling what was happening. Um, but I, I met my partner when I was 24. Um, we, you know, we, we both had lots of practical jobs. He he wanted to go back to university, and he did. He did his chemistry degree. My partner Rob and um, and and I worked, and then we had started having children. And as I went into that haze of having children, you know, that haze just really—I I was unaware that my liver was just really, really beginning to fail. Um, I found out I had Hep C in 1992, so that was when I was pregnant with my second daughter, um, and um, that was when the very first it was a testing ability first happened. I was the first person my doctor had tested for it. Hmm. So um, yeah, I was pregnant, having other tests. I'd heard that a boyfriend of mine had it, so had previous boyfriend had had it. So I said, oh, you might as well do. It, it was in the news. Uh, there was a bad blood scandal here. Politicians resigning. And yeah, and lo and behold, I had it. So, mm. well, Hep C has become a big part of your life today in terms of the advocacy and things that you're doing. Can we just take a moment to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, because I think that will set the scene for then what happened next and things. I think so. So, what hepatitis means? It just means inflamed liver. So, hepatitis A, you get from. Um, it's viral too, but you get that from water or polluted water or food or contaminate, you get something in your mouth. Um, mm. yeah, a doctor said, oh, you get someone's poos in your mouth. That's what, how you get hepatitis A. Uh, hepatitis B and C are both blood-borne viruses, so you require um, someone else's blood to get into your blood, but it's only it's such a tiny amount, um, and the viruses can live on surfaces and then be picked up. So, yeah, contamination in hospitals, contamination in dentists, drug-taking and sports fields and... Um, any way that, and we've heard some amazing, you know, over the thousands of stories I've heard, I've heard some amazing ways how blood can get from one person to another. The basic thing is it always happens by accident. So there's transfer of blood by accident and you're, you're stuck with a lifelong virus unless you treat it. Mm. Hepatitis C is constantly active and it is just chewing away at your liver 
until you get to the point where it's chewed away so much you get very sick and need either liver replacement or die, liver transplant or die. And that's the point I reach. So uh, hepatitis B is different. It's um, the symptoms and the fatigue and um, it chewing away. The liver ends up being the same, but basically it's switched off completely. So you've got it, it's there, but it's not doing anything. And then it switches on and that mechanism is un- unknown. And at that point you can suppress it. You can't cure it, but you can suppress it. Hmm. So those are, the t- those are the kinds of hepatitis. So basically hepatitis means inflamed liver. Hmm. Um, and viral means you got it one way or another. Hmm. And yeah. Yeah, I think my mother got hepatitis A because the story is that she ate some oysters, raw oysters mm-hmm. in Chile. And um, she... Yeah, it affected her for like yeah. three months. I think well, she was bedridden, and um, there can be there can be surge in oyster beds, and that's definitely how you would get it. So you know, raw yeah. oysters would be an easy way for you to get Hep A. Yeah, I had Hep A in India too. Right, um, I had and it when I arrived in England. That's probably why I found it so depressing. I didn't know I had it actually until after I'd been in England a few days. Right, um, but yeah, and and just talk us through then because it sounds like this is something that people wouldn't wouldn't even know that they've got it. No, they so. don't. So, yeah, that, that's been my motivator um, because uh, in New Zealand where there's estimated 50,000 people have hep-, hep C and less than 50% are aware. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to become aware uh, because it's because the symptoms are fatigue and it's very gradual. Um, it's just so gradual it's imperceptible. I, at the point of needing a transplant, I was still saying to people, oh, I'm really lucky, hep C doesn't affect me. And I didn't know till it came off me, which was just such a shock, Mm. the difference of how strong and brave I've been all those years with an odd man. It's like gravity or something. It's like an increased force of gravity. Just I I, I say it's like having a a backpack on and someone putting a single pebble in it every day, Mm. Um, uh, uh, adding to your fatigue and and what you carry. But it's the unawareness and um, the fact that, you know, there's, there's a really easy cure and people just aren't aware. And the stigma around it is that people don't ask to be tested or the stigma around it means doctors don't test people. Mm. Um, means, the, yeah, that, that's why I've picked up the fight because as people who need to know, they should just take these magic pills and feel amazing. Yeah, so um, the stigma comes because it's a bloodborne thing. Because it's a bloodborne thing. Yeah. And so, yeah, the, there's a strong association with drug use um, and even if people don't know that, um, I, th- I don't know if you were aware of this before you talked to me, but I, what I've always found is that with hep C, people, um, they're not, even if they don't know much about it, they're just aware there's something a bit iffy about it. Mm. You know, like it just puts that vibe. There's something a bit iffy. People take a step back. People take a step back and they immediately want to know how you caught it because they want to know that they are. Then it's not them, and that's what they're. They don't even realise that's what they're asking. But of course, I've been asked it so many times. I know exactly what they're asking. They're going, right. yeah, they, they want. They want me to reassure them that they haven't been in the kind of person who deserves to have something, or you know, that's pretty much. And I'll get that in the most shockingly overt or subvert, subvert way. Um, but people have this general awareness that, that that's just something a bit yucky about it. Mm. Um, and so that's so pervasive, so pervasive. Um, that, yeah, it turned out there's no such thing as a hep C advocate except me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in terms of the cure, um, yeah, yeah y- you make it sound like it's fairly straightforward, but w- what does it involve? Well, this is a part of the um, stigma, the part of tr- hard difficulty to get people tested because it used to be absolutely dreadful. So twice, you know, I was in 1997 and 2000, uh, 99 and 2003, I took interferon-ribavirin combination, which is a, sort of a, a similar to a chemotherapy effect. 
Um, you take it for a year. In the first one, I injected myself every second day in the stomach, and it just brings on like hard and fast flu, like shaking, teeth chattering, aching, body aches um, for 12 or 14 hours. Um, and then you do it all again. Hmm. Um, and uh, your bones feel like they're bursting. Um, it's very unpleasant. And a lot of people don't last the treatment, and um, it had very low success rates. But and a lot of people who have done it have really regret their interferon and wish they hadn't. But I, I'm sure it kept me alive. It, it gave my liver a rest, even though it made me really ill when my kids were really small. Mm. Um, I think it gave my liver a rest, and I lasted long enough for the amazing miracle breakthrough drugs, which um, were tested first here in New Zealand. Um, first human trials were carried out in New Zealand. We have a very, very famous heptologist here, uh, several, but uh, Professor Ed Gain of the Auckland Liver Transplant Unit. He ran the first human trials for the American company that um, came up with the molecule hmm. of direct-acting antivirals, and, and they are absolutely miraculous. So for context, we have only ever cured one virus, and it's hep C. Hmm. There is no other cure for any other virus. Um, this is a complete and utter cure. So everything else um, is a treatment or a symptom treatment or a therapy or a reduction or a, yeah, whatever. To uh, hip HIV and hep B, they can be really well managed these days and maintained with antiretroviral. The same researcher, actually, who discovered the hep C uh, DAAs is, is, um, is the person who put those retrovirals in the dish too. So um, he, Hep B, HIV and Hep C, remarkable achievement by um, uh, one researcher, Professor Schnauzi in America, hmm. who I've met. Um, and yeah, but the DAAs, you just take one pill a day. Uh, the, New Z the type we have in New Zealand now, you take one pill a day for eight weeks. You don't even know you're taking them. I can't drink coffee because it makes my heart race. Um uh, you know, this has got no effects, almost no side effects whatsoever, which is also very unusual in medicine. Not even, um, not even placebo, no, nocebo for side effects. So, it's one of the cleanest, easiest medicines to take. Um, and what's remarkable about it is that they found how you know medicines you just swallow them and they rinse through your body. Yeah, they cleverly found how to make it uh, stop at your liver and go nowhere for twenty four hours and mm -hmm. just stay there and work on just there. So yeah, pretty yeah. clever wee hook. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm just thinking of the interview I did recently, um, someone named Sava Kurdimalidis, and we were talking about patents and um, mm. basically healthcare and mm. how actually it's, that. yeah, <laughs> well, it's a great episode actually, because his idea is that we need some other way to incentivize scientists to come up with these types of solutions yeah. because the old ways are, seem to be broken. They're, they're utterly and, broken. And, yeah. and it's, yeah, it's yeah. the biggest problem facing the world. I think um, it's, the, it's the most problematic industry. It's worse than the industrial military complex. Mm. Terrorism and military, all military action kills 40,000 people a year in the world mm. or 400. And that's, that's, all the billions that go into it mm. um, to make those deaths happen, and that's including terrorism, and every death's terrible. Um, but 400,000 people die of hep C alone every year, and it's just business as usual. Mm. And the pills cost about under 100 bucks to make. Wow. So if you want to talk patents, I'm very interested in talking about that because <laughs> yeah, I'm in thick of that. So um, at the point, I, and, and yeah, we're we ready to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, that's got fine. To? So, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. 2014, I was um, working for Heritage New Zealand. I was 51. Um, I'd never been to university because I thought my liver wouldn't last and I didn't have that uh, freedom to leave my family and do it and stuff. My partner had done his PhD. I supported him in that. 
But when I was 51, I was working for Heritage New Zealand and I was the lowest pay, paid person out of 100 people. And, you know, I really held the threads of a lot of things together. Um, I went to a staff training thing about the Treaty of Waitangi and I looked at and I thought, I, sh- I, I could do this better. I should have done this. I should have done this. I should have done law. And I was right near the university and I looked across and I thought, I think I'm going to do law. I think I'm going to go to university. Oh, no, I think I'm going to go to university. Oh, And it really <laughs> came over me like this inevitable thing, which yeah. I never even considered it, never considered, never considered law. Um, and I knew once I'd spoken to my partner, if I said it to him, he'd say, yes, you have to. <laughs> I kind of left it 24 hours and then I did and that was it. So I was, that was the end of 2014 and I aimed to go in 2015. So I had to jump through a few hoops because I didn't have proof that I could read and write. Um, and I studied throughout that year. And then in September, um, I went for my regular six-month checkup. And they went, you needed treatment yesterday. This is, this is the end. I think we're going to have to put you on the transplant list. You know, things have gone completely to custard here. Right. Actually, it wasn't September, it was October. I had my first exams. My first, you know what it's like getting into law school. Yeah. I don't, you know, there's, there's no, you don't get any six monthly exams. It's all or nothing in the in the first year. Mm-hmm. Top seven, top twenty five percent only get in in um, Otago, and um, and just yeah, three weeks before my exams, I got told, you know, end of the line with my medicine, mm-hmm. uh, with my liver. They said, but guess what? A new cure has been invented and it's available, um, but you need to pay for it. Now, the cure that they were recommending, that would have been 90,000 US, but it actually was the wrong cure. What I needed and what I ended up taking would have been $265,000 US. I needed it straight away. Um, I couldn't wait. And I walked around in circles for about three or four days, um, putting my affairs in order. I rang a real estate agent, I rang the lawyer, mm. um, started wondering, you know, talked to Rob. He had absorbed it. I don't think how serious I was trying to play it down for everybody, but, you know, I knew it was really serious. Because your chances of getting a liver transplant are only 10%, I should say. It's all very well to say you're on the transplant list, but there's only 10% chance you're going to get one. Mm. Um, and I have an unreasonably unusual blood type. I probably just wouldn't have got one. Then I saw an article in the paper about a... Uh, my sister sent me, actually, my sister Sally in Australia, she sent me a link about um, some advocacy in Australia for hep C, and it had a related link, uh, Buyers Club Hep C Medications. And I clicked on that, and yeah, my whole world changed from that click because um, I came across amazing people in Australia who'd set up Buyers Club um, to rescue people like me, had decided it just wasn't okay, that these medications were very cheap to make, and that the reason for them being so high was unjustifiable, and that it didn't, um, it didn't, doesn't reward, it doesn't reward the originators, it mm. rewards the company shareholders and the lawyers up the chain. Mm. Um, and yeah, it, it was a brutal lesson. I, um, got hold of them and said, yeah, does this mean me? And I quickly got hooked into Facebook support groups, learned what the real medication I needed was, how available it was. And it was just, I had a tele, my first telehealth doctor's appointment with Dr. James Freeman and he prescribed the medication for me and at that point we didn't know that we could post it to New Zealand um, so I arranged to go to Australia to pick it up straight after my ex- he said sit your exams and come because it'll take three weeks and so the day uh, of my final exam I got on a plane and went to Australia mm. and um, waited anxiously for a week and then they came the pills came in the bo- in the letterbox and it's an incredible feeling to get them 
you know, I've seen thousands of people. We all feel the same. We feel kind of relate to the pill bottles even, you know, like the, the, the how the form that they come in and we post pictures of the bottles and things because they, they're the only icon we have and it, it's your life in a bottle. Mm. Absolutely remarkable. So I started taking them. I went home. Within three days, I felt better. Wow. Like remarkably better. I was still very sick because I had cirrhosis. When I, when I started... Um, being ill, um, I was diagnosed with cirrhosis when I first moved to Dunedin. So um, I'd had it. I'd had it 18 years. You, you expect it to last about 12. Um, I'd had cirrhosis, and I'd been told we'd all believed it was irreversible. Um, that once you've got it, that's you, you know you can fix inflammation. Your liver's amazing; it regrows, but it can't fix scars. Can't regrow scars, and that is the case for most people. But yeah, I've I've been extremely lucky. I've got full full reversal, full reversal. I have completely normal liver now. Yeah, it's an amazing story, and I think it it just gives the grounding to what you're doing today. So, which is mm. why I love asking these sorts of questions to get a bit more into the history. Yeah. Can, can I just ask you? You know, like you're given that news from the doctors, and basically said, well, you can, you know, two hundred and sixty five thousand dollars to do this treatment, but you're you're kind of right it death's door it sounds like you know like you're getting close here just that take us back in time um i'm just really curious just to understand the mindset or or what it's like to be given that news you know and and be told look this is irreversible and we're not sure how much longer you know Mm. you're contacting your lawyer and and you know yeah what's what's that like well look i've been hanging over my head so long Mm -hmm. and every yeah it was kind of surreal because i didn't feel like I was that much sicker. Um, but I really, looking back, oh, man, I was. Mm. When she said it, it was um, it was a shock because I had a lot on my mind, <laughs> uh, law school, law study. Yeah, it was more I worry about other, everybody else. And I was going away right there. I was getting picked up from the scan to go to a family gathering for a relative's 60th birthday where we were all staying together for three days. And I just knew that I couldn't really even deal with it till after that, even think about it. Um, and so that was a really kind of disconnected experience because I had this other half of me make, worrying and making plans in the background and wondering how I would lessen the shock for my mother and things like that, you know, like that was the kind of thing that was worrying me. Mm. And I'd kind of had this inevitability that I was going to die young. And I, I remember when I first got diagnosed with... Um, cirrhosis uh, not the hep c was a shock but this with cirrhosis my youngest was only four and i remember thinking just let me get her to 12 you know which of course is inadequate once she was 12 she obviously needed many more years mm. um but I, all of those things happen and they they keep going um i guess it's not over till it's over and when i realized there was a cure i still thought there was hope um but i was yeah i, I didn't I had barely begun to process it when I got an answer, so that's the answer, really. So within five days, I knew about the buyers club, and had my appointment, um, and and yeah, then I had to get through my exam. So I am I'm proud of the fact that I got into law school when I was so sick. I apply. I the law dean Mark Hennigan, wonderful man. He insisted that I apply for a um, um, consideration of my circumstances because it was a shock and um but they turned it down <laughs> so um so I had to sit them and pass and yeah and I got it so I, I'm proud of that because I was pretty sick at the time mm. um but yeah I'd do it standing on my head once as well yeah and that's something we share because I'm a lawyer as well so mm. um just I'm curious let's come back to the hep c and the discussion about what you're doing today 
But I also know that towards the end, I think, of your law studies, and, and more recently as well, you got involved with Arthur Taylor. So I'm yes. just wondering if you could tell us a little bit of that story, because that would be interesting. But I really want to come back to find out more about what you're doing in the Pacific and things. Sure, sure. So, yeah, um, well, it was Hep C that led me to Arthur. So um, I don't know if you heard much about Arthur Taylor in your law school years. It might have been a wee bit. His um, best cases were probably a wee bit after your time. Mm-hmm. But every law student, pretty much first week of public law, you're learning Arthur Taylor because he um, has set what trespass means in New Zealand. Um, he, his smoking ban case is the one that proves that um, a prison cell is their home and you can trespass in it if the reason, if you cross the threshold for... There could be many, many, many more reasons when you're in prison why someone's allowed to cross the threshold of your cells. But if it's not on the list of reasons, then it's trespass. Mm. Um, and so that was pretty interesting that a prisoner had done that, and I could vaguely remember seeing him on the TV about other things, prisoner voting. And, yeah, we study a lot of Arthur Taylor cases. And at the time I was a hepsi advocate, and I was wanting to, uh, with my now friend, Dr James Freeman, uh, we were wanting to uh, fund free treatment for a whole prison and test and treat everyone in a prison because we didn't have free treatment in New Zealand then. We were still paying for it, so it's only been two years we've had free treatment. And we were offering to pay for an entire prison um, and just getting nowhere, uh, of course, with the corrections department. So um, just you know, no replies even or not, no interest, no traction. And I thought, well, he's a prison advocate. I'm a hep C advocate. Um, he's prob- he'll probably be a good person to tell me um, what buttons to push or maybe he would take it on in um, Parima, remember where he was, and try and make Parima remember the prison where we did it. Um, so, um, so I wrote to him, and yeah, really excited. I got a, I got a card back from him, and all my law student fellows were going, "Wow, oh, you've heard from Arthur Taylor in person!" <laughs> um, and yeah, and we exchanged a few letters about that, um, and we didn't get anywhere with the Hep C, but um, in prisons at that point. But very soon afterwards, um, a young guy that was a friend of my oldest, who was no was living in Australia, that they said, "Look." Um, could, could you go and visit my friend in prison? He's ended up in prison. He's got no one to visit him. And I said, oh, all right, then I will. And I went to visit him, and I thought he'd tried to hang himself because he had bruises all around his neck. But no, they'd been put there by a prison officer, and he'd been um, he'd been charged. Um, the prisoner, not not my my yeah, the young friend, had been charged, not the prison officer. Mm-hmm. Um, with this really gruesome strangling. Um, and so I consulted with Arthur, and Arthur told me, uh, Official Information Act, and quote Tanoa case, and do this and do that, and put this in the letter. And, you know, between us, we got all of those charges against Josh overturned, the officer disciplined, and, and Josh's re- return to his p- rightful position. Um, mm. where the whole debacle cost him nearly six months in prison time. Um, uh, that he got, he, he was asking to make a complaint, asking for a complaint form when he was attacked and strangled. Um, so yeah, that brought me in contact with Arthur in the legal sense, and I was for the first time handling a legal case, an important legal thing, like a lawyer when I was a law, so I was a what, second, third year, second year, um, law student, um, and then very soon after that, the day after we got the decision that we had succeeded there, and this is at Ota- um, Otago Corrections Facility, I got news from Primarimu that Arthur had been moved to Waikiria, and um, uh, he'd been rendered unconscious and moved unconscious, and he'd been strangled. And that's the case that we have ongoing now. Uh, it's still ongoing. Um, but, yeah, I, that from that moment I became his advocate, and 
I looked around me and I couldn't see why it was up to me, a law student, to get to deal with Arthur Taylor, obviously being unlawfully rendered unconscious. But no one else was doing it. And um, that's often the case. That's what I find. And so he and I, uh, yeah, very interesting friendship. Um, he, he's, he eventually, we, I realised he was a political prisoner and that he had to get out of prison. And I asked my lecturers for help. Um, they showed me how to take it to the human rights branch of the UN, and um, we threatened to do that. But I really wanted, basically, to uh, I'd prefer trial by media because it gets things happening faster, and that's how we did it. And simply told the story in the media. Um, I got ex- finally got access to the um, body cam footage and the fixed camera footage, and uh, watched some of that with Mark Hennigan, the Dean of Law, and yeah, we got a story out. And soon after, Arthur was appeared for his 21st parole hearing. He's the most, he's no one else in New Zealand's ever appeared for parole as often as Arthur mm. um, in one sentence. And he was a parole to our place. So we are, we have Arthur Taylor, He's uh, he's lives at our house. Um, well, not in our house, he has a tiny home. We have an adjacent section and he's got his own property. But um, yeah, he's um, he's part of the whānau now. He's That's on parole amazing. till June. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's just a non-stop adventure. He's always, always helping people the poorest people in the worst trouble, um, at, at the at the most powerless people, and Arthur's just twenty four seven putting the stuff right for them. And mm. yeah, he's an absolute legend. Mm. Well, I'll have to get him on the podcast at some point. Oh, and, you really do. And because um, he's written a book relatively recently, he's written right? a book. It's just recently come out. Yeah, we're really stoked with that. Um, yeah. It was in the bestseller list, uh, Prison Break, and that's his life story. It, it focuses heavily on his crimes and escapes because he's quite fascinating. He was a bank robber and he's escaped from custody 12 times. So there's not even room in the book for all 12 escapes. Um, But really what's amazing about him is is his law. He is an absolute legal genius like I've never encountered. He's one in a million. You know, I don't know how you feel about it, but could you have done law school and been the best in the country (laughs) with no books, no colleagues, no lectures, no tutorials, no anything? Um, it is just incredible. I mean, he's su- succeeded in the Supreme Court numerous occasions, but um, notably with the prisoner voting case. Mm. Um, he's upheld human rights repeatedly on behalf of all of us because um, they're, they're all our rights, but um, those who are on the cutting edge of them feel them look, go at their loss first. Yeah. Um, and oh, that's his, his legal, I've been in court with him and. His, co- his, his, his court conduct, it's just impeccable. You know, like he's just, a, he's the best in the room. Hmm. Well, I'll have to put some links in the show notes and people can click through and find out more. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like he, he, he is, you should interview him. He is absolutely fascinating. We're very lucky. Um, it's not everyone's cup of tea having a bank robber in the garden, but um, <laughs> we find it quite fascinating and the most um, interesting social justice thing we could ever watch yeah it sounds like it so coming back to hep c and um i'm just looking over people can't see it but you've got a tattoo there on your left arm yes i'm just curious if you could describe what you're actually up to today and um yeah just raise awareness in terms of how people might be able to support that or get involved what are your plans for the future yeah so hep c advocacy has taken me all over the place and um it's taken me to conferences and uh, around the world and and um public speaking and um, a lot of media Um, basically when I first got cured and it came off me like a ton of bricks it was the most incredible feeling like I just I just not many people get it like that it's much more gradual but for me it came off me like a ton of bricks day three or four it was just incredible 
a really amazing thing to experience. I actually think I'm really lucky to have experienced it at 52 mm-hmm. to get a really big increase in capacity. Um, and I mean capacity, you know, like, yeah, I've never been dumb, but, and I got into law school anyway, but it was like I only had certain hours of the day, whereas now I have 24 hours of the day. Right. Um, and I realised there must be 500 people in New Zealand that week who needed to know, and I had to tell them about the Buyers Club. Um, I just had to. Um, very, very camera shy and to that point. I have very few photos of me exist. I've always avoided them seriously. And I was nearly sick with anxiety about getting my photo taken for the pay for the ODT, the Otago Daily Times. I can remember now. It seems so long ago, six years. Um, yeah, five years, five, six years. And, um, yeah, so I was my first story. I had to ring around. And this is my experience. I was saying to people, every media outlet, I've got a, he- a really interesting Hep C story. There's a buyer's club. It saves people's lives. They went, oh, no, Hep C are interested. Our readers aren't interested in Hep C. I got knocked back by every media um, group and finally the, the nurse who was overseeing my treatment here in Dunedin she put me on to a journalist who had personal experience and he came around and interviewed me and we were actually waiting for results on the same day <laughs> and um, yeah and and that was my first and that kicked off more stories because people did see that it was interesting that people's lives were being saved by a buyers club that who who otherwise will die mm. Um, and so that led to quite a, that was, yeah, I think my first story was in January the 1st, and it led to quite a flurry of stories through January, and um, I just gradually learned to suck it up, getting my photo taken, performing for the cameras, having my three messages on cue, mm-hmm. um, PR, PR, and just what an incredible tool it is. But it was because of the stigma, so I was thinking, okay, I'll fill the space till we find someone much younger and prettier to be the PR person because I'm not silly and I know what works um, for PR. You need faces that work and 50-something women aren't that and uh, Photoshop 50-something women aren't it. And I just expected more advocates to come in around me. And I thought there'd be one of me in every town in New Zealand, let alone around the world, but there just isn't. The stigma is so pervasive mm. and I find that both revolting, but I've never also never been in the closet. I've always had to face it because I was out of the closet straight away with it and I've just always just faced it. Mm. Um, but, yeah, the stigma is so bad that what uh, we realised was needed was a, a symbol, a symbol that got past what I was talking about before where people shrink back. And so, yeah, James Freeman, Dr James Freeman, he he, he commissioned um, Native American artist Marty Tubals to do a symbol, and he described it to him, and he wanted, yeah, the rainbow, the butterfly rising up, and a figure in the middle. Mm. And um, Marty came up with a few iterations and then this and we just loved it straight away um and um what it does i I, i've now trialed this all over the world i got it tattooed to get in the news um i'll put that link up online you can see me getting it the tattoo if you like um it's being filmed um by the press um here i got it done in christchurch um that yeah that this symbol makes people walk towards us instead of walk away or shrink back and the symbol is so um, warming and enlivening that, it, uh, yeah, people people take two steps forward instead of one step back. And when you say, oh, it's for hep C, they're already in a good frame of mind and it's okay and they don't have that veil of, isn't it a bit of fee? They go, oh, tell me more without that. It's a, it's a, it's a 180 degrees turner. Now, we've trialled, you know, that's what we think. So then we took it to... Um, the biggest liver conference in the world in um, Vienna, and we just absolutely swamped and got heaps of people signing and endorsing it and thousands of butterflies given away. And, and um, so that's amongst clinicians. 
Um, we've tr- the same with patients, the same everywhere. So where this butterfly has risen to now, it is, it is the global symbol for hep C. It's well and truly established. However, it's actually morphed into viral hepatitis in general, hep B and C, because of just the way it's been used in, in popular demand mm-hmm. and the similarities with our projects. Um, and right now, um, there's a trial uh, in Auckland, uh, the 64, I think six, 67 pharmacies in Auckland, every pharmacist is wearing this butterfly. Um, and people come in and say, what's the butterfly? And they go, it's hep C, and would you like a test? And we can get you on treatment right here and now. Right. Um, and so that's that's the draw card. It's on their post, it's on all their materials. Um, so it's a great tool, isn't it? It's to, a story To break down tools. the barriers that people might have in perception. I think I saw it. It's amazing. It? Shout out to Anake Goodall. I think yes. he gave me some stickers and some different things that I took home and showed my kids because it is very colorful like you say it is so uh, uh, Anaki and I um, Anaki contacted me um, late 2017 Um, he he had worked with my father at Naitahu setting up well right right back in the day so he was a young man then and an intern and um, he and dad worked dad had huge respect for Anaki and then bang dad was dead got at my age 57 exactly the age I am now right dead on the job and gone from Anaki's life, and Anaki was kind of gone from our family's life. Um, but he joined the Hep C groups, noticed my name, got in touch. Actually, I, I, I put on the punamu that Naitahu gave my mother when Dad died. I put it on. It hadn't been worn for 25 years, and she gave yeah. it to me. And I put it on, and within two days, Anaki rang me. Wow. Um, <laughs> and said, let's do something. I've been noticing you. And I said, are you? And, you know, we remembered who each other were, and... Huh. And the day we met in person to advance what we were going to do, set up Hep C Action, set up an um, NGO under his Seed the Change charity, um, was the day before I went and got this tattooed. Wow. So he started up joining us with the butterfly, and he's yeah he, he saw it in action. Um, mm. Yeah, he's, he's That's really cool. I love that in life, um, how there's you know, different stories weave in and out of each other's they lives. They do. And sometimes decades go by, and you don't know, you know, like wearing the... Ponamu. Yeah. And oh. then, like, that's, <laughs> there's more than a coincidence there, right? Like, it, there's there's deeper things that are going on, I think. Totally. You know, uh, a, a year or two ago, Anaki's um, mother died, and I attended her funeral. And his mother-in-law was there, who I hadn't seen since my father's funeral all hmm. that time ago. And I went up to her, and I said, oh, it's so nice to see you. Look, I'm wearing the Ponamu from then. And she said, I know, I chose it. Wow. So she ended up being his mother-in-law huh. that actually chose that piece of punamu wow. for my mother that I wore. Um, hmm. Yeah, remarkable, remarkable. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, the, and even little things like, because I, I remember sitting with Anake now, it's probably three or four years ago, talking about Seed the Change. Exactly, you set and, it up. And I helped him, um, one Incredible. small part, but yeah. I helped him do that, and now we're talking about what you're doing, and it's all these interweaving of stories. It's I really, know, really cool. I know this is before Ed McClory <laughs> Fellowship. I mean, this is, that's, that was amazing to me that you set up the charity for Seed the Change because I was their first project. You know, right. Hepsi Action was their first project. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so yeah, got us going. Um, yeah. And as we got more action, um, we yeah you know, we 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 came out from under their um, umbrella. They, mm. they they were our Kickstarter charity Kickstarter umbrella, and we came out into our own identity. Yeah. Sort of thing, well, what we'll do in the show notes, we'll put links to websites and different we can see the tattoo being yes, put on yes, and all, absolutely, of that. all of that if people are interested in getting involved or want to know more yeah what would be your encouragement to them oh look 
I hear from people all over the world um, at all hours of the day and on, on all kinds of issues, and I love it. And I would love anyone to get in touch um, who's got anything they want to add or say or help or contribute. Um, what, what I'm doing now is we set up a... A, uh, a charitable project to um, cure countries, whole countries of hep C and B, viral hepatitis. So um, the elimination of viral hepatitis is a st- sustainable development goal and the, it's set for 2030 um, for global elimination because you can cure hep C and you can treat and um, repress, suppress hep B. Uh, now, it affects 7% of the world. So 6% have hep B and 1% have hep C. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of New Zealanders. That's a lot of everywhere. Um, and uh, biting off bite-sized pieces, not one country is on track, really on track, to eliminate by 2030, except for one now. So Anaki went on holiday to Nui, and he came back, and he says, Nui's a lovely little place. Couldn't we just do everyone for hep C on, on check everyone for hep C on Nui? Hmm. And, yeah, my Dr. James said, yes, we can, let's do that. So we decided, right, we're going to cure it, we're going to just tick a country off the list of the sustainable, UN Sustainable Development Goals. Well, you know, a small group, three, four of us are going to do that. Um, and we've worked solidly with the uh, Nui government and, and have managed to pull it off. So... What happened was we were all set to travel there, of course. COVID locked it down. Um, we thought we're not going to be able to do Nui this year because we can't go there and we were going to fundraise and just fly in and do it all. And COVID teaches us all sorts of lovely lessons and one of that is that that's not actually a really good way to do it. Not, not That's not that repeatable. Um, it's much better to just assist people to do it in their own place, in their own uh, way. Mm-hmm. However, you know, our original plan is we didn't want to extract from, from impoverished systems and demand anything of them so we would just come in and fit it all in over top of it however yeah as i say that just doesn't integrate um well into ongoing care and stuff or a buy-in and Nui public health department i shout out here to griselda and dr eddie um just absolutely outstanding they've put us in the position of being the world's first so we 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 fundraise through edmund hillary fellowship um ninety thousand dollars us and that was a um a symbolic amount because it's the price of a single person's hep C treatment in America um, that by patent, mm. patent it's the patent price for a single person's Harvoni um, in America. Um, and we figure for that we can test every single adult in um, Nui. Now, very quickly when we consulted with um, well, both Dr. James and um, Professor Ed Gain, um, who, I, as I mentioned, did the first human trials from Auckland, he said, look, you can't do hep C without doing hep B at the same time because it's more prevalent and you, if you're going to stick a needle into everyone, you, should, you just got to do both. At that point, hep C action really became hep action in a way because we, we, we accept that and any project we do now, if we're screening for one, we'll screen for the other and, and I wish everybody would do that. There's a lot of hep B researchers and there's a lot of hep C researchers mm-hmm. and I think everyone should just squeeze that drop of blood into a different... Um, piece of paper and find out if they've got either or both um, rather than one or the other um, because the the sustainable development goal is viral hepatitis which is both um, and so yeah we fundraised we bought the tests we made them available and the training and on Nui they have um, finger pricked every single adult um, eligible adult and tested them for hep B and hep C making it the first country to do so mm. they haven't got official world hep 
health organisation status yet is eliminated because we've got a bit of paperwork to do, but not much. And yeah, they should be the first country in the world um, to achieve that. And they're certainly the first country in the world to achieve whole country screening. And we're now setting our sights on the next one. And we're we're called Cure a Country, and it just says what it is: Cure a Country Viral Hepatitis Elimination. And um, we're going to pick them off one by one and just do whatever we can to empower each nation to, to get to that goal themselves. Some, some of them are further along, some of them are really far back. Um, we're fo- our focus is on the Pacific because that whole island thing makes the concept really understandable about um, a country and, con- and cure it. And it's out in the backyard and we should and we have a colonial history with infecting the Pacific Islands with our viruses and it's our job to fix it. Um, and and our responsibility because we can. But for instance, um, we've recently formed alliance with two other really amazing viral hip eliminators um, from around the world, Prof Alice, uh, um, Lee in Sydney. She has a project in Christmas Island in Kiribati. There, 20% of the adults have active, unt- chronic, untreated hep B. That's one in five. Um, and they're dying very young. So, you know, that's that's an absolute crisis. And, you know, when I know what it did to me, and I think, you know, imagine what it does to an economy. Mm. You know, um, you'll, you know me a little bit now, Stephen, and you see what I'm a bit of a... I do stuff. I get mm-hmm. stuff done. Um if you can imagine, I didn't when I, before I was 52. Imagine mm. the, uh, you know, my productivity has increased I don't know how many times mm. over. Mm. Um, if you put that into a, a population, you know, my individual experience into a population picture, the burden of fatigue and illness, because it causes lots people, the, we really don't know how many people die of it because we all die, we die six times more likely to have a stroke, six times more likely to have a heart attack, six times more likely to have all these other, you know, many times more likely to have these other issues mm-hmm. um, from fighting the chronic virus all our lives, that it's a real massive burden on health systems, even not counting the direct cost mm-hmm. of hepatitis. So uh, really economically, it's a gift to any country, to, let alone personally, um, to lift that off people's backs. Yeah. And yeah, That's an amazing story. I mean, the statistics you're talking about as well, you know, one in five, it's such a, that's a huge That's huge. Number, that's, that's, so. so Uzbekistan has the worst rates of hep C in the world. That's 15%, whereas we have one. Um, and that's massive. Egypt has got nearly that many. Um, and um, uh, Christmas Island and Kiritamati has got the highest rates of hep B that is known. Mm. Um, it is just dreadful. And it's also preventable. Um, it, it's intergenerational, particularly with hep B. It's passed on mother to child. Right. And, um, yeah, there's a lot you can do to prevent that. Um, mm. But you have to be there and you have to have the meds and the vaccines there. Mm. Well, it sounds like an amazing work. And what we'll do is in the show notes, we'll put some links so people can find out more. Um, I'm just curious, you've mentioned the Edmund Hillary Fellowship. How have you, when did you join that and what's it been like for you? I'm just, because some people are listening, know it, others don't. But yeah. I'm always curious to find out right. about other impressions. Yeah, so um, I was I was encouraged to, it was, yeah, 2018, there was a lot going on. I was being nominated for various things, Woman of Influence and and various things. Anarchy and Claire said the change, said to me, you know, you, sh- you, sh- you should be an Edmund Hillary Fellow. I hardly even really researched it. I just went along for the ride. Um, mm. and then I got into it through the application process. But um, I didn't really have a lot of investment in it because, um, uh, yeah, I, I wasn't sure I'd get it. And I was uh, trying for a lot of things. You know, it's like throwing my hat into the ring. Mm-hmm. I threw my hat into a lot of rings that year. 
Um, and this one came off. And it wasn't really until I got to my welcome week in Glenorchy in 2018 that I understood um, who I'd be meeting and what it would be like. And um, it has been absolutely amazing for me. Um, it has opened doors that just would never, ever have opened to me. It's put me in the room with sorts of people that I would never meet. Um, and when I first joined... I had a very New Zealand chip on my shoulder. I, do I should I be in this illustrious company kind of thing? Um, I don't have anything like the record of these global big men, the people. Um, but it comes down to mana and personhood, and and you know, I, I very quickly did have it. I very quickly owned it enough. Um, mm-hmm. And um, my welcome week was really, really amazing. Um, I actually had to leave for a whole day. I had to uh, get permission and leave for a whole day, and I went and appeared in court with Arthur. It was my first appearance in court, right? <laughs> um, which was very exciting. I flew to Wellington from Glenorchy and then back again for a day. Um, and I got to see him in action for the first time, so that was quite fun. But, um, yeah, Edmund Hillary Fellowship, it's, it's um, global entrepreneurs and change makers that want to make New Zealand the base camp for the world, uh, use it as a demonstrator country for what can be achieved in the way of impact. And I think it just, exactly what we've done with Nui, I keep thinking of how similar it is. You know, we've just made Nui a, a demonstrator country to show that um, if you do this, then amazing things can happen and um, these can... And New Zealand is kind of with EHF. It's like that, that at that scale. Like, look, look what we can achieve here, but look what we can achieve from here too. Not just here, mm. in inside here, but look what we can achieve from here if we collaborate, if we shake hands, if we introduce. I, I'm sure you have too, but I have met some incredible people that will be with me for the rest of my life in the mm. fellowship, um, for which I'm extremely grateful and. Um, and also, you know, recognising that the fellows fundraised, uh, you know, I fundraised privately for Noe. I was able to, within that fellowship, cure a country. Hmm. You know, like, the, for me, philanthropy's been very hard in New Zealand. Hmm. Um, my project's the philanthropic, um, and it has been very, very difficult um, and disheartening. And... Um, uh, Edmund Hurry Fellowship really came to the party with us. I'm, you know, I'm collecting again now because we're looking at the Cooks, Cook Islands, which is tenfold um, the number of people, and um, and I'm looking to the fellows again for that because uh, there's a lot more of them now too, and they have the resources. But together we can do it. Like we can. This, uh, I feel almost like um, as Nui as a flagship for us, Kira Country, and as New Zealand as a flagship for the world. I like to think that uh, my Cure Country project is a bit of a flagship for EHF, uh, for Edmund Hillary Fellowship as well. It shows what we're capable of, mm. um, of, 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 re- of really making a difference on the ground in the world um, um, if we just collaborate and collectivise a little bit. Mm. That's great. Well, it's, it's good to hear different perspectives on it because I always like to hear about how people got you know, involved and then what it's meaning. Cause I think it's one of those things. It's a, it's a basically networks and mm. it's getting to know other people and it's really hard to put a monetary value on the importance of it. But I think it's down to these connections and it's yep. the, the people who know people who then introduce you to somebody else or, you know, g- get another opportunity that wouldn't be there so well look i just met some fascinating people you know shout out to my friend melat in ethiopia she um she wants to start um she 
it's the civil war there. She's had COVID twice. Mm. Um, she's a child nutritionist watching children die of starvation around her. Mm. Um, and she's uh, does amazing work there, getting nutrition bars um, to, into crisis areas and so on. But she wants to set up dairying links between New Zealand and Ethiopia. Well, Ethiopia is an econo- economy of 100 million people. They have no dairying links to New Zealand. And it's useful. It's a good thing. You know, like we've got work to, we could do together. And, and I know nothing about dairying or anything like that, but I know about New Zealand and Milat and, and Fervor and, and Wish and Will and Want. Um, and, yeah, I've had some just beautiful overlaps with other fellows' um, projects um, mm. that are fascinating. Yeah. Well, it's been great to have you on the show because I love to hear about those early origins as well, you know, that mm. go back into your childhood. And we can kind of see why you're doing what you do today when you think back to your primary school years and yeah. you know and and in a way i love that that you know the consistency of the character that comes through but also just hearing about what you've done even in the last 5 years you know that there's been a big transformation in your life and i always like to leave something with the listeners and you know for them whatever age they are <laughs> what what is it that exactly. we could each accomplish or achieve and and you know that the fact that Nui is now a very different place to even mm. two years ago, you know, like that's an amazing thing. And and so how can we be the catalyst for change, I guess? Yeah, look, it, it is exciting. Look, um, I am a very good advert for it's never too late. Mm. Um, and it's never too late to learn or study or have you live, start living your best life. So, yeah, uh, I've had a you know, successful family and all that sort of stuff, a modest kind of life I've led. But, but yeah, you can start living your best life at any point. And generally, living your best life means living in uh, some kind of service, uh, paying it forward, paying it back, paying it in, lifting others. Um, and that's, that's basically what... We all operate for self-interest. We all operate out of self-interest. And the self-interest I find is that I find myself more interesting when I'm lifting others up. Mm. Um, and and so I'm getting something out of it as well. But it's um, that's there for all of us to do any time. And there's all these kinds of small acts of kindness, paying it forward, not needing reward, not needing to be noticed that I, I wish people would do more of because they would have happier lives, um, mm. doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, why don't we finish up there? Because that's a good way to finish the podcast. But I just want to say thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you, Stephen. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Hazel. There was lots of things that stood out to me, and I loved how diverse our conversation ended up being. Make sure to check out the show notes for some of the links to things that we talked about. And if you enjoyed this, check out some of the more than 270 other interviews in the back catalog. Until next time. Mm-hmm.